0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. and welcome back to the podcast. Before I get started, I want to apologize for that technical snafu that occurred in episode 203. The first upload of that episode contained a version where, well, many of the initial tracks were turned off. And so for about 15 minutes or so of the episode, there was no sound. <laughs> so in order to remedy that, you you may have to delete the existing episode from your phone or other listening device and then re-download the latest version that is out there for download. Most channels, such as Spotify, update their available episode connection frequently. And so the newly revised episode should be available on all the better podcast channels. So again, sorry for that snafu. Oh, and while you're at it, I just have to ask everyone once again please get over to and subscribe to the JFK Enduring Secret YouTube channel. We are inching toward getting to that magical number, which is some 1,000 viewers. I'm not going to put any additional material out there until we get to 1,000, and we are around 700 today. But trust me, you will be happy once we hit that milestone, as there will be some interesting material that I will share and that is in the works to go out once we do hit 1,000. So please do get over there and sign up. It's free, and it takes all of about 20 seconds or less to find it and subscribe to the channel. Please do so if you can. It means a lot to maintaining this channel for free on the podcast. Today's episode is episode 204, and it's, of course, the continuation of episode 203, where we began a mini-series of episodes associated with the presidential limousine and the damage to its windshield, and whether there was a through-and-through bullet hole in that windshield, and whether there is evidence that the bullet then entered from the front through to the back. All of that collectively ensuring that there was a shot from other than behind, and that there was a shooting conspiracy. Okay, so in episode 203, we reiterated the story of Dr. Evelia Glanges, one that you have heard before in a much earlier episode in season one of JFK, The Enduring Secret, and which is derived from the history channels, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. She was clear that it was a bullet hole through and through that she saw at Parkland and that it was clearly from the front and traveling front to back. And as a doctor and essentially a firearms expert, she has great witness credibility in this discussion. But remember, corroboration is the name of the game. And in episode 203, we began to tell the story of the three motorcycle policemen at Parkland that observed the bullet hole. Now, in episode 204, you'll hear taped interviews straight from the horse's mouth from two of the three policemen in question. Stavis Ellis and H.R. Harry Freeman. They're both interviewed and they tell the story in their own words. And Ellis states that the third motorcycle policeman, James Cheney, was with him at Parkland and saw it too. James Cheney rode the motorcycle that was closest to JFK right at the moment of the shooting. He was on the right side of the presidential limousine, dropped back just a bit closer to the follow-up car. And then we turn to the final witness at Parkland. Journalist Richard Dudman. Now, here is a fascinating story that I will say no more about until we get there and tell it. And of course, we've told it before actually in a much prior episode of JFK The Enduring Secret. After it's all said and done there, we then leave Parkland, having introduced seven witnesses five named and two more unnamed witnesses that were with the named witnesses and which two have been confirmed by those named witnesses as having seen the same thing but wanting to remain anonymous then we begin to introduce the mysterious sequence of events that began to happen as the presidential limousine made its way back to the white house garage the night of november 22nd and beyond and in this and subsequent episodes we will introduce three more witnesses including one secret service agent and one white house policeman along with a four-glass expert, who all observed the hole in the glass, with the glass expert absolutely indicating that the shot was from the front and through to the back. But what is more nefarious than even those revelations is the extent to which the authorities went to destroy evidence and fabricate evidence in its place related to the windshield. A pattern that almost simultaneously was going on with the presidential autopsy. Probably, when it's all said and done, this is one of the most mysterious stories told in these episodes of JFK The Enduring Secret. Doug Weldon is the premier researcher in this area, and we will listen to much of what he has to say as the story unfolds. When it's all said and done, we will have introduced 10 known witnesses who observed a through-and-through hole in the windshield, two of which were sure that it entered from the front based on the damage that they saw. Eight of those ten were identified, and all eight were highly credible. Five were government officers of the law in some capacity, and one more was a highly respected journalist, and one more still was a doctor, a surgeon, with deep firearms experience, And on top of all of that, the story goes deeper to cover the destruction of evidence and its replacement with evidence that clearly appears to be fabricated. And in the midst of that, introducing one more final witness from the Ford Plant in Dearborn, Michigan, who was involved in the process to destroy the old windshield and fabricate the new one. So let's listen now to the rest of Episode 204 of JFK. The Enduring Secret. Fred Newcomb was a JFK researcher that later wrote a book with Perry Adams entitled Murder from Within. Newcomb commissioned Gil Toff to interview a group of the motorcycle officers that participated in the motorcade that day. Toff masqueraded under the pseudonym John Whitney as the interrogator. Some interesting things resulted. Both Ellis, Freeman, and Cheney would agree to be interviewed by Fred Newcomb on tape in 1971. In the tape, Ellis identifies Cheney as a third Dallas motorcycle policeman who was right there with them at Parkland and who also observed the same thing a bullet hole in the windshield. Let's listen to the portions of those tapes now that deal with the hole in the windshield. Let's listen to the recorded interview of Stavis Ellis. You were
1: what part of the motorcade were you? I was a sergeant on a motorcycle in charge of the escort of the motorcade. Complete the movement of the motorcade. You know, an you know, interval between vehicles that on the straightaway and the closed interval during in the downtown area and so forth like this, and I was in front of Kennedy's car. You were in front of Kennedy's car. Yeah, I had the chief of police's car right in front of Kennedy's car, and then I was in front of the chief of police car on a motorcycle, and I had two men assigned on either side of Kennedy's car on you know, to the side and to the rear of the back fender. And we took the motorcade from Love Field to the downtown area and then after the shooting we took him over to the hospital. Uh, which car were you closest to when you were riding on a well, I'm trying to get a th- picture in my mind. That's why I'm so... I was in front of the uh, chief of police car. He had a car with the, the sheriff Decker and the secret service chief in it. They were in front of uh, limousine that was carrying a present, I was directly in front of theirs and to the left a little bit where I could see back down the side. Uh-huh, uh-huh. In other words, you would have been on the, the opposite side of the depository. I was uh, on the opposite side of the side that faced the depository. Right. Depository, the right side of the car was at the, the north curb, which... I see. You were the, the south, south curb. I was on the south Right. Coast. Now I got a did you look a look at the car at all once it got to the hospital? When the dead, car? Once it was emptied Yes, up. sir, I sure did. There was a mass of blood in the back seat and pieces of skull bone, and there was a hole in the left front windshield. Uh, uh, Do you know how it got, how it got there, by the chance? Well, I would say it came from the shot. one of the shots was shot at the president one of them there that I don't know, I believe it was the first shot I saw it hit the street behind us uh, and throw up a flare of dust and where it hit the concrete curb and I saw a bunch of people fall and I thought Are you sure that was a hole? Because we keep thinking it's just a crackle or something. Well, Well, uh, it was a hole You could put a pencil through it, I showed it to Officer Cheney out there at the hospital and uh The angle on it was like if something came over from high on the right rear side and came down and right in front of the driver and out the glass into the street about five, six, three to six inches uh, to the right of the left post of the windshield, which would have been right. It would have went right just over into the front of the wind, the uh, steering wheel, and out at that angle the trajectory in that hole in the building and the place where it hit the street would have been just exactly right. Or we I showed it to Cheney at the hospital. You could take a regular standard writing pencil, wood pencil, and stick through there about that side. And I said, look, there's where that first one went. He says, some Secret Service agent, says, that's no bullet hole, that's a fragment. It wasn't a damn fragment. It was a hole. There you go and there was, the bullet hit the street down there. The FBI come out there and cut a plug of that concrete curve out for the investigation where the yes. bullet hit. I think they did it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, let's listen to the recorded interview of H.R. Harry Freeman.
1: What position did you have at that point, when they were coming down Elm towards Harry the... Harry Freeman. Uh, I was right to the left front, please. I was out, oh, some few feet out to the left front out there. I don't know exactly left how far. Left front it is. Of, oh, the lead car, Curry's car. I mean? No, no. It, it, at that time, I was uh, between between Curry's car and uh, uh, the limousine. Limousine, right.
0: Fantastic.
1: Do you remember seeing the windshield exploding and things like that on the presidential car? Right. No, I didn't see it explode. I didn't even know it even had a hole in it until after we got out to uh, the hospital. You saw the hole at the hospital? Yeah. Uh, when you say we, who, who else had seen who was it? Who else was out there? Yeah, who saw the hole? Oh gosh, I don't know. I think Ellis also saw it. Yeah. Should have. Yeah, right. Yeah. In other words, it really was a hole, not a crack. It was a hole in it on the left on the left side to the left of the driver. Uh, how close were you to when you looked at it? At that time. Yeah. I mean, oh heck, right beside it. I could have to touched it. You didn't touch it at all. I feel what it was. No, huh? Uh, but you couldn't be quite sure it was a hole. Oh yes, yeah, it's a bullet hole. You could tell what it was. How did you think that? Could-
0: That's pretty convincing, and it's from three officers, so it's generally pretty credible. There is one complication. The Stavis-Ellis testimony solves one issue, but it creates another one for those attempting to prove that the shot came from the front. As you heard, Ellis is unequivocal that it was a hole. However, he had quite a different take on the direction from which the bullet came. I am going to describe exactly the words he used to describe the trajectory. You just heard them on the recording, straight from Ellis's mouth. Are you scratching your head too, like me? Yes, I was. But now I'll go through them more slowly, and let's figure out the hocus pocus together. Officer Ellis states it was a hole. You could put a pencil through it. That's good. I showed it to Officer Cheney out there at the hospital, and the angle on it was like if something came over high Think of this now over high on the right rear side. So it's in the back and it came down right in front of the driver and out the glass into the street. About five or six inches to the right of the left post of the windshield. It would have been right just over and to the front of the steering wheel. And out that angle. Well, the way I interpret that is it came from behind. It was up and to the right. It was angling to the left. It came down. It went through the windshield. It traveled beyond the hood because it was such an extreme angle to the left. And so it traveled past the windshield and down and then finally onto the pavement. The trajectory in the last part of what he says, the trajectory of the hole and the building and the place where it hit the street would have been just exactly right. I'm going to say it one more time. The trajectory of the hole and the building and the place where it hit the street would have been just exactly right. That clearly sounds like he was trying to line up a shot that emanated from the building, came down into the limousine and then hit the street. And that surely would have come from the rear. Again, sadly, some researchers have tried to play this as the description of a shot coming from the front. Clearly, it was the description of a shot coming from behind. Whether Ellis is right or wrong about the direction of the shot is not the point here. He could be wrong. And whether it came from the front or from the back, well, that was just his opinion. But the point is that this part of his story somehow never gets scrutinized. And I am just not sure why. Well, at least we are 100% sure that Officer Ellis confirmed a hole in the windshield, regardless of his opinion on the direction upon which it penetrated. Now, let's pivot away from the police officers and get to our last witness that we are going to cover that saw the hole at Parkland Hospital. The last witness who observed the through-and-through hole in the windshield. That person would be the longtime St. Louis Post Dispatch reporter Richard Dudman, who wrote an article published in the New Republic on December 21, 1963, in which he stated A few of us noted the hole in the windshield when the limousine was standing at the emergency entrance after the president had been carried inside. I could not approach close enough to see which side was the cup shaped spot which indicates a bullet had pierced the glass from the opposite side. Dudman was a fearless reporter spending 31 years with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and was head of its Washington bureau for a time. He would cover Vietnam and go there to do so. He was captured by the Viet Cong. His writings would land him on a censored journalist list kept by the Richard Nixon administration. He lived a long life when he died at the age of 99. In his later years, he would be interviewed by Weldon. And even though he had been captured by the enemy and held captive for 40 days. And moreover, he once went to Cambodia as only one of three American journalists invited after the Khmer Rouge took over there. And one of those three journalists would not come home, dying under mysterious circumstances. Well, despite all of those nail-biting life circumstances... Something more domestic would keep Dudman in fear his whole life. What was that, you ask? Well, even in his later years, he was hesitant to talk about the hole in the windshield because he was worried. And he told that to Doug Weldon when Doug Weldon was interviewing him. Doesn't that tell you something? I'm friends with Rick Russo, who was intricately involved in the production of the Smoking Guns episode, The story we are bringing as part of this mini-series. And the story we are bringing today, which might never have been revealed in such a fine fashion, had it not been for Rick Russo. One day recently, when he and I were talking about this Secret Service story, he would tell me one more chilling thing. Why, I wonder, was a man like Dudman so afraid of the windshield story when he had navigated other truly mortally challenging life experiences? Rick would reveal why. Dudman had told Weldon that shortly after publishing the story in New Republic, Hoover himself called Dudman, invited him to Washington, and the FBI proceeded to show him a windshield, the official windshield at that moment, a windshield without a bullet hole in it, a windshield that clearly was not the one he saw at Parkland. Dudman Never forgot that. It was a powerful message from J. Edgar Hoover in signature Hoover form. And it was a message to keep quiet and not write about it anymore, or at least not write about it anymore like that. And now you know the rest of the story. Oh, and there's one more P.S. to that story. Dudman would write about it again on November 22nd, 1988, on the 25th anniversary of the assassination. He would do so as a guest columnist for the Bangor Daily News, a person who at that moment was recalling the event on the anniversary, a man who was there. He would now describe the windshield as follows, and I quote from the article, I couldn't leave the hospital until I heard from the doctors, so I decided to have a look at the Kennedy limousine. It still stood at the emergency entrance, police barriers having been erected there. But even at a distance, I observed one thing of interest, a circular blemish in the windshield. It looked like the dimple-shaped chip made by a bullet when it strikes the opposite side of a pane of glass. Well, I have just submitted to you the writings, or more like evidence, of a very fearful man. If you didn't think people were scared over all of this, just reread this whole section on Dudman. Now you really know the rest of the story. Dudman himself was with someone else at the time he observed the hole, someone he knew. We saw the same thing, and someone he refused to divulge, and someone who refused to come forward at that moment. Later, they were identified. And there was a second anonymous witness with some level of credibility, because they, too, were supposedly right there with the person on record who was observing this. And this time, it was a friend of Dr. Evelia Glanges. So, two anonymous witnesses in total. And while they remain anonymous... They are vouched as credible by the witnesses who are known. So that's it for Parkland witnesses, and let's briefly recap them. We have three motorcycle policemen on record as having seen the whole. Stavis Ellis, head of the motorcycle contingent on the motorcade, M.R. Harry Freeman, another motorcycle policeman, and James Chaney, a third motorcycle policeman. We have two identified civilians, Dr. Evelia Glanges, the second-year medical student, and Richard Dudman, the award-winning journalist from the St. Louis Dispatch. That makes five individually identified witnesses, all of which would be highly credible in a court of law, and two more anonymous witnesses that were with them. So that brings the Parkland total to seven that we know of. Keep that number seven in mind, because I am going to add three more to that in a moment. That's right, three more after Parkland, bringing the total to 10. But of the seven noted observations in Parkland, only one thought for sure that the bullet penetrated from the front, and that was Dr. Dr. Evelia Glanges, the medical student and now surgeon who had extensive experience with firearms. Don't worry, you don't have to wait too long before a glass expert will weigh in, and his credentials are important when it comes to determining direction. It's probably important to point out that the glass used in those windshields was safety glass. Apparently, safety glass was a relatively new concept in those days. It was a glass that was laminated together. There were layers. And the concept was that the usual shattering was avoided. Certainly a safety improvement, but the energy it transmits results in the damage of impact manifesting itself on the opposite side of where the initial contact is essentially carrying the energy through the glass and thus reducing the propensity to disintegrate in a harmful or explosive way. So, for a bullet fired from the front, the exterior damage was likely to be minor on the outside front. But then on the inside of the glass, you would likely find a cupped surface on the inside of the windshield where it exits. There are some that say that such a concept was not well known at the time. <laughs> the concept that most of the damage when safety glass is involved would be on the exit side. Well, in this case, perhaps not known by the Secret Service agents who might have been involved in the cover-up. File this concept and keep it close because it plays into what appears to happen with one of the replacement windshields. Trust me, you'll hear how that fits in shortly. And folks, you just can't write this stuff. Now, a brief moment of one more evidential indiscretion that happened at Parkland, and it relates to the cleaning of the limousine. As Kenny and associates quickly moved the limousine out of the reach of the public, they would open the trunk and take out the bubble top and a leatherette cover. Kenny claims, as you know from a prior episode, that he put the top on himself, But it appears that he at least got help from a Dallas policeman in getting the bubble top out and into position to place on the limousine. There is no doubt that everyone there was stunned in some sort of a moment where the mind does its best to stay tuned or just succumbs and tunes out. Recollections range from a razor sharp to just plain wrong. We know that. What we also know is that the Secret Service called for a bucket and a brush or something that would help to clean the blood off the limousine. There is a famous picture of a tin bucket next to the left rear door and wheel of the limousine. Taken from afar, it signaled a terrible irony. Even before the president's heartbeat was coming to a close, the Secret Service was attempting to clean up the blood in the limousine. Or perhaps, more properly put, wiping away evidence in a crime scene. Modern episodes of CSI will tell you that the spray pattern of the blood on the seats is important evidence. The reality is that someone lost their head for a moment regarding these cleanup items and then found their head before they cleaned the back of the limo out. It seems as if there might have been a bit of cleaning done that day, But likely it was minimal, and it was to remove the blood and the guts around the studs around the top edge of the car, where they lift the bubble top in place. And they elected not to clean up the blood-soaked back seat. Thank goodness. But it was one more example where law enforcement men, secret service agents for God's sake, completely ignored fundamental rules related to securing a crime scene. As a juror here, how do you evaluate that? Should we say that these men were the best of the best? And despite the enormity of the circumstances, this was a group that, above all, should have known how to handle it, keep their head, and have been totally focused on preserving evidence? Well, it's hard to say under the circumstances. Theoretically, yes. Practically, I'm not sure. It's the only president lost in the modern history of our country. I'm not sure what I would expect in that circumstance. But perfection, I am sure, was out of the question. The next real chance to stare at the glass in the windshield would be when the X100 was driven from Parkland back to Love Field, in preparation for the trip back to Washington, D.C. Sam Kinney, the driver of the Secret Service follow-up car, The one right behind the president's limousine would sit in the front passenger seat with George Hickey driving the presidential limousine from Parkland back to Love Field. William Greer was to stay with the body. And for the record, William Greer never acknowledged, at least publicly, a bullet hole in the windshield. It was a long enough drive that either of these two men should have stared at that windshield and noticed a hole through and through. If it really existed. And yet these passengers and inhabitants never weighed in on what they saw, whether they saw a hole or not. It is possible that this group was in enough of a PTSD fog at that moment that they didn't notice such a thing. But I don't put much stock in that. I think one of them did notice, had to notice. But I'm not sure that they were ever asked. And I'm fairly sure they never offered. This is one that we should ask Vince Palomara if he ever wants to come on the show. Maybe he asked and maybe they answered and maybe he knows. Thank God, perhaps more than one person asked these questions, too, because most of the principles involved are gone now. We'll keep seeking the answers on that one. Either way, Kenny had many more chances between Parkland and the White House garage. The X-100 was loaded onto the plane, Air Force cargo plane number 612373. It was a C-130E, actually, and as we have said in prior episodes, it was a plane that was assigned to the 78th Air Transport Squadron from Charleston Air Force Base. It was piloted by Captain Thomason. It sat there on the tarmac for quite a while, maybe almost 90 minutes and the gargantuan c-130 once it did take off slowly made its way back to andrews air force base near washington it would arrive around 8 p.m almost two hours after the arrival of the jet carrying the new president and the dead president for those of you wondering why well a c-130 is one big old transport plane and it simply doesn't fly as fast as other passenger jets I haven't done the calculations, but I'm not surprised. What we do know is that it arrived too late to be involved in any shenanigans with JFK's body. So nothing to contemplate there. Why it didn't take off right away, well, I'm not sure. And that does seem curious. But I am sure someone else will know the answer to this curious question. All this delay certainly gave Sam Kinney time to observe the limousine some more time to find more gore to retrieve a piece of the president's skull and put it in his pocket and then to give it to Admiral Berkeley at a later moment. I wonder if during that same quiet episode, probably alone with the limousine on the C-130, whether he was able to stare at the windshield as part of that exercise. And in that moment, Well, I'm just curious. Did he have the presence of mind, the same presence of mind that allowed him to find and retrieve that portion of the president's skull? Did he have the presence of mind to observe what was really there in the windshield? I wonder. It would be a long five-hour plane trip back to Andrews Air Force Base. After touchdown, the C-130 was taxied to a point just off runway 1028, approximately 100 yards from the control tower at Andrews Air Force Base, and a security cordon was placed around the aircraft while these vehicles were being unloaded. The next step was to drive the cars to the White House garage. Now, let's be clear here. The White House garage is not at the White House. No, no, no. Who would keep a car at the White House? The White House garage was located at 22nd and M Streets, northwest in Washington, Under police escort, the cars are driven to the White House garage. U.S. Park Police motorcycle officers are assigned to escort and accompany the two cars. Later, U.S. Park Policeman Officer Nick Principe, who is not a member of that motorcycle escort. However, he is a law enforcement officer who claims to have seen the hole in the windshield. And he then becomes the eighth identifying witness to do so right around the time of the assassination. His story migrated a bit over time, and so it's worth recounting the whole thing just a bit in more detail here. And this is how he told it to Pam Brown, a researcher, in her chapter about it contained in the book Car Crash Culture. Well, it goes like this. United States Park Police Motorcycle Officer Nick Principe states that he drove to the White House garage during the evening after having a conversation with a driver, Bill Greer at the West executive entrance to the White House, where Nick was stationed on November 22nd, 1963, in charge of assigning escorts to different groups of people during a very busy evening. Well, it looked to Nick as if there was a cocktail party going on in the hulking executive office building across the street. In fact, LBJ's people were gathering there, trying to decide if their meetings with the new president would take place there or at the White House. According to Nick, Greer was quite distressed that evening. He would say, we really missed you guys today, he said, mentioning one of the Dallas Police Department motorcycle officers who wouldn't speed up. In this discussion, Greer stated that there were shots coming from every direction, adding that one of them came right through the windshield. Nick states that he walked into the White House garage that evening without even being questioned, although he didn't recognize anyone there. He stated that he didn't see any Army presence or any guards around the car. The limo was not in a bay along the side of the garage, but was sitting in the center. Nick says he is familiar with both the SS-100X and the SS-679X, the follow-up car, and he was certain the car he saw was the presidential limousine. The roof of the vehicle was up, and a tarp covered the windows. Nick states that he walked over and lifted the tarp. He noticed a hole in the windshield, low on the passenger side. He saw no damage near the rearview mirror. What is interesting about this statement is that Principe confirms that a through-and-through bullet hole existed. What is curious about this statement is that he noted it to be low in the windshield, just like Stavis Ellis pointed out, and contrary to other reports. And then what is downright confounding about this statement is that he said he spoke with Secret Service agent William Greer at the White House the night of the 22nd. And of course, we know, based on all the work we did related to the autopsy, that Greer was at the autopsy and stayed with the president's body all evening at Bethesda. He couldn't possibly have been at the White House speaking with Nick Principe that night. So this statement has some controversy and is the first of a number of discrepancies that may hinge on dates and timing. Now, one thing I am not curious about is why Principe was not on the White House garage logs that night. You see, as a policeman on the White House detail, they likely wouldn't have required a sign-in. Although he does say he didn't recognize anyone there. All of that a little confounding in a circumstance that is supposed to have had a higher security alert attached to it. Anyway, although it sounds like he hit the garage when no one was there, it also seems certain to me that if this happened in the way it was described in the book, Car Crash Culture, that it probably occurred on some other night. Perhaps Saturday night and not Friday night. Well, the confusion starts right here, doesn't it? Okay, let's back the tape up slightly. We need to point out that Sam Kinney, accompanied by Special Agent Charles E. Taylor Jr., drives 100X from Andrews Air Force Base back to the White House garage. Likewise, SS679X was driven by Special Agent George Hickey, who was accompanied by Special Agents Kaiser and Brett. Both vehicles were escorted by U.S. Park Police motorcycle officers, this is an especially important trip for Secret Service agent Charles Taylor as he rode for an extended period of time in the passenger seat of 100X all the way from Andrews Air Force Base to the White House garage. Surely this, combined with his time in the garage after they arrived, was more than sufficient to observe whether there was a hole or not through and through in that windshield. More importantly, he and Special Agent Harry Geiglin would be placed in charge of the security detail with the responsibility of guarding the two cars once they made their way back to the garage. And yes, when Agent Charles E. Taylor wrote his security report on the 27th of November, he would indicate the presence of a hole in the windshield and become yet another credible witness, the 9th. In today's list to identify a hole through and through in the windshield at around 9 p.m. upon its return to the white house garage secret service agents searched the car once more finding two bullet fragments in the front seat area these two fragments eventually would become commission exhibit 567 and commission exhibit 569 both of these fragments had evidentiary value that is They were large enough to provide information linking them to the magic bullet, Commission Exhibit 399, and therefore to Lee Harvey Oswald's Mannlicher Carcano rifle. These were turned over to the FBI for testing. A piece of skull was also found in the car, and this was taken to Bethesda Naval Hospital and delivered to the doctors performing the autopsy that night on JFK. There was ample time for the Secret Service to put 100X into whatever condition they considered appropriate prior to turning it over to the FBI at 1 a.m. Some say that the Secret Service had completed their agenda of effectively sanitizing the primary crime scene. That's conjecture, of course. From here, we will tell the rest of the events of the evening as they were contained in the security report prepared by Secret Service Agent Charles Taylor along with a more detailed account of events included in a letter from James Raleigh, the Secret Service head, a letter that was transmitted to J. Lee Rankin, the chief counsel for the Warren Commission. The letter from Raleigh was penned on January 6th. After questions about the limousine, its chain of custody and the evidential matter it contained first began to surface at the commission in December I will remind you that earlier in the episode, I pointed out that there were discrepancies related to the timeline of the limousine. And you see, there are four principal sources of that timeline for these episodes and the related events that occurred. First, Secret Service agent Charles E. Taylor's security report, dated November 27th. Second, the January 6th memo from James Rowley to J. Lee Rankin. Third, the White House garage security logs. And finally, the fourth source, an internal Ford Motor Company memorandum prepared by Ford's representative who was intimately involved with maintaining the limousine. His name was Vaughn Ferguson, and we shall refer to this fourth document as the Ferguson Memo. Recall from earlier in this series that I stated that the HSCA attempted to put a timeline together regarding events and chain of custody related to the limousine and they were unable to definitively conclude as to its accuracy. The very discrepancies in the dates are a core element of what Doug Weldon points out as an integral part of the deception, sloppily done or skillfully confounding. By the way, there are one more aspect of this discussion that ensures the confusion will abound on the dates unless you accept that some of this information may have been deliberately fabricated as part of the cover-up. So let's proceed for now with those official documents and assume they are undisturbed for a moment by what others will clearly lay out as a case to demonstrate that the discrepancies are lies regarding the timing of events, lies to cover up what really happened. As you can see by the report, Taylor becomes our ninth witness to assert that there was a hole through and through in the windshield. Here was a Secret Service agent who was a front seat passenger all the way back from Andrews to the garage. A man who had plenty of time to see and observe the windshield and then in the quiet of the garage again had time to examine all things before anyone else arrived to review what was there. It was a blunder, a slab of truth that got by and was entered into the record. The only Final Secret Service report filed that would identify a through-and-through through bullet hole in the windshield. There it was, sit, lying in the grass, quietly like a snake. Until, in 1976, Taylor's remarks would be identified as significant by the HSCA and he would be asked to give an affidavit to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. It was there he would tidy up his testimony. It was there that he would now erase the idea that there was a through and through bullet hole seen by him. In Doug Horn's estimation, it was there that he would now commit perjury. Horn goes on to say this, In his 1976 recantation, an affidavit prepared for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Taylor indicated that he changed his mind after examining the windshield stored in the archives on December 19, 1975. Like Galileo, when prompted by his inquisitors, Taylor reversed himself, saying, and I quote, I never examined this apparent hole on November 22, 1963, to determine if there had been any penetration of the glass, nor did I even get a good look at the windshield in well-lighted surroundings. Well, I think Doug has a one-word quote for that in his book, and I think it's bullshit. Oh, maybe not, but I'm sure he was thinking that. There is no doubt that he was pressured, and there is no doubt he caved. 1976 was still a period when men and women were afraid for their lives when it comes to this topic and their possession of existential knowledge related to the assassination. One more important fact that I will point out from Taylor's report is the documentation that the security detail, the special protective security ring of agents surrounding the 100X and securing what was left of the crime scene at that moment, ended at 4.30 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. And that is a perfect setup for the events that clearly happened off the grid and after 4.30 p.m. beginning on November 23rd, 1963. All right, well, I've been going like crazy here, and as you might expect, it's getting late, and I'm getting hungry, and it's time for a sandwich. So let's pause here, and we'll pick this whole story back up in episode 205, where we begin to hear from Doug Weldon. Thank you for listening to episode 204 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.